pilot. Pilot? What's a pilot? Well, the way they pick TV shows is they make one show. That show's called a pilot. And they show that one show to the people who pick shows. And on the strength of that one show, they decide if they want to make more shows. Some get chosen and become television programs. Some don't. Become nothing. She started one of the ones that became nothing. Yeah, these days, there's so much violence in our TV programming, so much gratuitous sex in our TV shows, and I think it's just normal for us now, right? But I think at the time that these HBO shows were coming out, it was so shocking to people. They'd never seen a level of graphic violence or sex at, at you know shown this way on TV. And uh, I, I, I always try to put myself in the shoes of people who first watch these things. And, and um, I don't know. It's, there's, a, there's pros and cons to that. What do you think? I mean, are, do you think that there's sometimes um, it's like a Pandora's box, right? Do, do you think there's been more positives or negatives to come from the last 20, 25 years of just maybe unlimited amounts of this sort of content? Interesting. Uh, I... Well, yeah, uh, the show that we're about to talk about it came out in like the late '90s, and during that time, people went nuts over Beavis and Butthead, Eminem, Jackass, and uh, The Sopranos. That it, like, it was so that kind of, at least, for lack of a better term, vulgarity from all these uh, South Park too. Like, people went nuts. People, uh, people would protest and try to dissect Eminem's anger and people never really seen this kind of violence on television or this kind of graphic violence, not like a, uh, right. You maybe had implied violence, you had implied off screen violence, like, you know, in a lot of, uh, police shows, courtroom shows, this sort of thing you would see the end result of, Yeah, you wouldn't normally see it actually happening. And now these, uh, yeah, these, these TV creators, these, these voices, they can really show you as much as they think that is necessary for the story. So it's freeing in a way, but at the same time, you know, there's some, maybe some other shows that come to mind that probably exploit that maybe a little too much. You know, there's a balance to that. I think if the the story is good, and like if if it, if everything makes sense, then the the violence is. Uh, justified like it works it, it even if it's supposed to shock you because that like as real and gritty as uh the show the violence might be it's okay to put your hand over her mouth like you just watch a character get shot in the head like and to the best of these makeup artists and special effects people's capability it looked real <laughs> right exactly it could it could be almost too real for some people and the show we're talking about today as you mentioned the sopranos i think there's a level of removing some of the hollywood glamorization of violence in a way that almost feels too real at times although in this first episode we'll be discussing the pilot there's kind of a mix of that you know the the more slick cinema um cinematic version of violence and then maybe also some more of that gritty realism Got yourself a gun. Got yourself a gun. 
But, you know, movies had been this violent before as well. But, you know, you had. They were maybe a little bit more ahead of that curve of, you know, uh, upping the ante and pushing the boundaries and TV was catching up for obvious reasons, too, because HBO was still a pretty young network at the time. Well, for a movie uh, for like and this is kind of what separates like movies and TV. You go out to see a movie and, you know, they do have that. Sorry, you're you're not of age to see this movie. R rated PG-13 PG. As questionable as that NPAA rating system can be at times. Very much so. But, yeah, no, I, I remember I couldn't see American Gangster at one theater, but the other theater would allow it. Uh, and that was that came out in when I was in high school. Um, but I uh, – with TV, you, in, you invite these characters. It's in your home. It's, it, I'm, it's like a – I'm not going to say a part of your family or a pet, but it is – it's one thing to go out and see violence in a movie and then re-see it on TV. And even then, it's kind of censored at the time. But to invite that kind of storytelling into your home, it, it's more shocking. <laughs> That's a good point. And TV, you're right, it's in your home. And so it feels a little more personal in that way. Yes. If you see something on TV that offends you, Right, you do feel a little more violated because your home is your safe place. You would think exactly, and exactly. for people who are at the time in the late '90s discovering what this new network is opening up, it, it can be pretty shocking if they're not prepared for that. Although I'm sure there were plenty of other people who were excited that this sort of level, uh, again, of violence and sex was now accessible on this medium. Uh, but you know, the the mob. The mobster mafia genre had always been popular in film for many years before that, and now we're seeing a, the the television version of it. But it always has an appeal, even outside. You know, like we we grew up in New Jersey, and so we're both very we have a lot of experience with the Italian American community, at least in the New York New Jersey area. But even outside of that, I think it's just, it has such broad appeal. Well, why do you think that is that? This, this mafia setting is something that has such such popularity. Uh, I would like to think that it represents it's like peeling back the curtain on a on the underworld or something like you get you get to like an invite into a, a, the dark side and it's kind of a Goodfellas made it fun. It's kind of like why people play grand theft auto it's like you get invited in you get to uh participate it's sex you get you know it, uh, there's a lot of i guess like why henry hill wanted to be a mobster sex drugs money power you kind of get a uh, front row seat to all that and it's kind of fun to watch and with great characters it's really fun to watch but yeah no it's it's uh intriguing backstabbing family uh there's a lot of themes that come with uh mobsters but also it's the fact that it is a part of the american uh, to go back to an earlier mob story godfather it is a part of american culture that started from italy now granted you got the japanese yakuza you got the mexican cartel but the american mob 
is very there's a lore to it there's a mythology there are characters that really stand out and i feel like every time i'm always pleasantly surprised to discover like a new mobster who's been around that's kind of uh like there's a new family i never knew the families that david chase here was inspired from that's uh, but you hitman too like it, there's a lore to them yeah, I mean, this, these operations were obviously far more prevalent in the time that David Chase had grown up in, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And you're right, I think the American dream is an idea that is commonly brought up in these kind of stories, right? The pursuit of the American dream and what that means if you're pursuing that in a conventional way, in a criminal way. And, you know, obviously there's maybe living a little vicariously through these characters, doing things that a lot of us wouldn't really dare to do, right? Like uh, living so so wildly and, and doing so many daring things and living such a dangerous lifestyle. And also I think that these characters that you, you see in The Godfather, Goodfellas, The Sopranos, they can be really funny in either an intentional way or even an unintentional way. I think in The Sopranos, it's a little more unintentional. There's a lot of really funny malapropisms and, you know, uh, sort of misunderstandings that these characters have that make them fun to to poke fun at at times. But also, they're they're still charming in a way. There's a dichotomy there where the characters can be very charming and nice. They can, or at least seemingly nice, right? They put on this facade, but underneath that, we see that there's uh, a brutality there and it can be really scary and, and so it's fascinating to see the characters flip from one side of their lives to another and that's that's another big theme too you know a lot of these guys in the show they have their family lives in which they they're playing husband and father and that's one type of role they play but most of the time they're playing a much more brutal sort of person that has to commit very heinous acts and to you know, live in those two very separate worlds all the time. Again, it's it's very interesting to see these characters juggle that, and uh, to varying degrees of success. So I think there's a lot of there is a lot of appeal there in those respects, um, and so there's there's a lot to mine, which is why I think this genre is is so enriching, even though um, you know sometimes it can be a little um, you know, a little stereotyping for the Italian American. Oh yeah, movie. oh yeah, and funny enough, this show even goes into that at times like when uh when oh absolutely when other characters are talking like they're they're ruining like these are not italians that we want out there like (laughs) right exactly even there within the show it's addressed how these mafiosa types give italian americans a bad name and that's a very fair point too to bring up uh it doesn't make their stories less interesting it's just hopefully people who watch these stories don't automatically assume that all italian americans have any association very few of them do it's sort of a show in a genre that has almost everything it has very tense moments very scary moments very dramatic moments but also they can be very funny at times too and so you never really know what to expect Uh, and so there's a lot of longevity and certainly the sopranos has cemented its place in tv history with just obviously really rich writing and uh, just very fascinating characters to to follow down this this six season journey with. So uh, Keith, if you want to take us through a little bit of the history behind the pilot of The Sopranos, where it all began, 
that led to what I think is one of the most important shows in TV history. It definitely is. And, uh, well, start. let's start with uh, the man himself, David Chase. It, he wrote and directed the pilot. And it, it funny enough, he only did direct the pilot and the finale. But reading about David Chase, he was very hands-on. Like, he was a very intense showrunner. I, I don't want to say micromanaging, but the man knew what he wanted. And uh, it premiered on... Our first Sunday, HBO, January 10th, 1999, to 3.45 million viewers. Uh, They filmed the pilot, though, in 1997, in the summer to fall of 97. And Chase, he kind of, he's been a a TV writer for decades, I I would say. He wrote for, like, you know, to our... To an older generation, uh, generation, he wrote uh, for Rockford Files, and I think he won an Emmy for that. Northern Exposure. He's been writing. Uh, he was the man's a born and bred TV writer, and then he was given his own deal to develop his uh, his own show. And when that came come, he basically wrote what he knew, and a lot of that, like he was always fascinated, uh, like we talked about with the mobster, and at the time. I kind of, this had to be around the time that Analyze This was coming out, too. That did come to mind. I'm like, that has a very similar premise, obviously. But I, I don't think the Analyze This, Analyze That movies have been um, – you know, they don't have the same longevity as The Sopranos, I don't no. think. No, no. But it, it, it was a – I think he was more interested – well, one, he was, a, he was a man in therapy. And not just like – it sounds it – sounds, Judging from Tony's therapy, pretty intense two times a week type therapy. Uh, Livia is based on his mom. And as I'm watching this, I'm going, I would, if I ever based a character, if that was my mom, I would, like, she would have to be dead for me to write a character like that. I was thinking, poor guy to grow up with a mother like Livia Soprano. That could not have been easy. And so I don't blame him for wanting to just write this character based off of her just to obviously it had to be a therapeutic release, but also just so everyone could see what he had to go through with. Cause it's like one of those things where you, you have to see it to believe it. And I, I believe these sort of dysfunctional abusive characters exist, but you really have to see it in action to understand the weight that that sort of overbearing personality has on somebody. Uh, Livia, and I, I think we can officially say Olivia Soprano, played by the late and great Nancy Marshall, uh, who not- I know first from the Naked Gun. Just saying, uh, very obviously she looks very different, but uh, that oh, was yeah. that's like just the one other connection I know this actress from. Obviously, she's been many other things. She but- won Emmys for uh, the spinoff to Mary Tyler Moore, Lou Grant. So she was an acclaimed television. She's uh, I've seen her in a couple movies way in the 70s. She's been around. And when the time came for her to play Livia Soprano, she plays it to the like she's one of the worst if not the worst mom on television. Like and I mean that as the highest honor. Absolutely. Uh, Again, she does such a great job that sometimes I feel like this way with a lot of the actors on the show. So I really watch the show and forget these are actors sometimes. And I, I'm genuinely reacting as if these are real people because it's so lived in. And uh, the Livia character is um, – she, she's quite a trip. 
right? Oh, yeah. It's he's a very unique character on TV too because you don't normally see mothers portrayed in such a abusive way. And uh, I read that Melfi was based on his therapist as well. So uh, he basically he took. His uh, what he knew from therapy, his relationship with his mom, and just growing up, like you said, in the 50s and uh, 60s, uh, the Italian families around uh, North Jersey, the Di Calavente and the – I don't want to mess them up. I really – like I don't have the I tongue. think Boyardo. I think I was going to say Boyardi. <laughs> That's probably it being – it's um... – Close enough. So he was also uh, inspired by playwrights uh, Arthur Miller, Tennessee Williams, and filmmaker Fellini, and all that shows as well, especially when Tony dreams. Uh, oh my gosh, we'll get into dreams. They they yeah. talk about a dream in this first episode, but that's such a big element of the show as well. Um, and The Sopranos, I read that was the name of one of his high school friends. Cause, but it's what a name. But so he ha he writes the pilot, and. Yeah, he he gets several offers from different networks. Fox turned it. Fox uh, kind of showed interest, but eventually passed. Thank, I, I think, and I'm happy that HBO took it upon and they decided to fund the pilot. It would be such a different show if it was on a broadcast network. It, it would be completely different. The, it would lack impact. The television landscape would be completely. Uh, completely different, and I'm actually very confident in saying that. Like, it I 100% agree. Um, and I found this interesting that David Chase was nervous. They filmed the pilot, and as we're getting closer and closer, uh, you know, as it's getting made, he he was getting nervous about how it was going to be, uh, you know, viewed. And he asked HBO, he's like, you know what? Just give me some more money, and I'll turn this into a feature film. HBO ended up loving the pilot, and they gave him a full season of 13 episodes. And when I was reading that fact, I said, that explains The Many Saints of Newark. That, oh, yeah. That good point. Is, I, hey, the one thing I have to say about The Many Saints of Newark would have been a really good four-season TV show or a really good miniseries. But, yeah, it's just you can't really condense everything there is to mine in this world into – one movie uh and i also had read that there was another network that had offered chase a deal that had which network it is wasn't disclosed but basically the deadline for that other network's deal was on the same day that hbo called chase to confirm it was being picked up by oh, them really so it was uh, had to be a very interesting roller coaster of a day for him because he had to basically either decide he can't wait for HBO anymore and go with another network, but thankfully HBO comes in right in time and the rest is history. So now we get into casting, and I, I'm sure you noticed it, but in every episode that when that opening credits plays, you see casting by Georgine Walken, and she is the wife of Christopher Walken. Like she oh, is, I did not make that connection. She is a very I don't I don't know if she's retired. I think she has to be, but she uh one of the best talent uh casting agents in the industry. Uh but she every every actor on the show is perfectly cast, but we start with the top. Rucker's own New Jersey bred James Gandolfini. Much pride. Much, much New Jersey pride. 
I remember when they when at the orientation for Rutgers, like he like and alumni they and he loved Rutgers too, uh, Rutgers footballs. But they they basically gave him a statue. They say that uh, True Romance, uh, the movie, uh, Tarantino's one of his first screenplays, the one that he didn't direct. He went to go direct Reservoir Dogs, but Gandolfini's role in uh, in uh, True Romance is probably what got him the part. I would like to think also Eight Millimeter. He he just plays like. A, oh yeah, he's in that. He plays a tough guy. Like he knows how to throw a punch. And unfortunately, in True Romance, when he beats up Patricia Arquette, but yeah, they definitely he has that. Yeah, he, he has the look of just of a tough guy. Uh, and but I found this interesting that twenty seven actors from Goodfellas ended up in Sopranos in some way, shape, or form. Ain't the and well, I yeah. believe Chase has said at one point that the good. That um the movie Goodfellas is his Bible basically, and they I think they even mentioned the movie Goodfellas at one point in this pilot, but uh but you can see there are some stylistic similarities in this first episode with the Sopranos. There's they d- depart from that. The, the show definitely becomes its own style eventually, but uh, you can see some some inspiration for sure from what is also like what I think is the best mobster movie watching the pilot this time around and watching a few episodes after I'm trying it. The show is very like the pilot hooks you in and we'll talk about that. And so I'm like, don't get now's not the time to start another show, but I've watched a few episodes more. The themes of the show are just more clear and maybe it's a little bit because I'm getting older as well. But, uh, anyway, he asked, Lorraine Bracco, you know, Karen, was originally asked to play uh, Carmela, but Mel- uh, but she wanted to try Melfi because it's a whole new different role for her. And I think, once again, everyone is perfect, so I think she went with the right choice. Right. We've seen Lorraine Bracco play the wife in Goodfellas, and she's amazing in that. She's very uh, crucial to the success of that movie. But I do really admire her choice to go for a different kind of role. It, even though, interestingly enough, I think Melfi is as important to the show as that character is. I don't think she's as big of a presence, at least later on, as Carmela is, but I think it was a good decision for her to take because she is just, again, she just disappears into that role. She's so good as Melfi. Well, that we'll get into it, but that their relationship is the most important. We got Tony Sirico, who played Polly Wal- Walnuts, and yeah, Polly Gualtieri, <laughs> otherwise known as Polly Walnuts. And all he asked was that his character not be a rat. That's interesting. I mean, he had a criminal offense himself, right? So maybe there was some matter of connection with the real mob world that he did not want this. Um, even if it was a fictional portrayal of a rat, he did not want that associated with him. But I was reading that Frank Vincent auditioned for Junior, and Frank Vincent would come a. He would end up leading the New York mob in the later seri- uh, seasons. Uh, Steve Van Zant auditioned for Tony. And, of course, Steve Van Zant at the time never acted before. But uh, David Chase kind of liked him so much that he, he Steve Van Zant would not have been Tony Soprano. But they created uh, Silvio Dante because Steve Van Zant has this humor to him. He's kind of... He's kind of uh, cartoonish, but not like the most stereotypical, I would say. Now, uh, the pilot uh, was nominated for directing and writing, 
but unfortunately didn't win. It only won for single camera editing, but uh, directing went to NYPD Blue, but college that episode won for writing. It, it dominated the right, like every, it's like four out of five nominations were Sopranos. That uh, I think every year the show won a lot of the awards at the Emmys, especially Edie Falco won Best Actress, I think almost every year for her portrayal. I was, yeah, uh, Michael Imperioli won uh, uh, in the fourth season. Joe, Joe Pantaleone, Pantale, uh, Cypher, but uh, he won. As Ralph Cifaretto. They they won um, for writing. They won for directing. They, like it's I. A lot of names that you see in Sopranos, you have seen in other shows. Like it, there would be no Boardwalk Empire or Mad Men without Sopranos. There would be Tim Van Patten, John Patterson, Alan Coulter, and Alan Taylor, amazing television directors who you see in other stuff. It's. It's so nice. Uh, Jamie Lynn Singo and Robert Eiler have a podcast right now. It's their relationship. They're best friends, and they have that sibling relationship. Michael Imperioli and Bobby, uh, Bobby Bacalava. They have yeah, their yes. podcast. Uh, uh, what's that guy's Steve name? Shripa. Steven Shripa. But it's the legacy of this show. It is. I, you have to say as even, and this is a great pilot, but. Of the television, prestige television, is Tony Soprano's face. Right. I think also, think of antiheroes, think of Tony yes. Soprano. Uh, and you're right. I think it definitely set the standard for all the prestige television that would come afterwards. And you, know, you could argue of maybe some shows even surpassed it in some aspects, but it was you the wouldn't first. have those shows. You wouldn't have those shows in the first place. So, um, I, Keith, let's set the stage now. So, it is now uh, January 10th, 1999. We're turning on HBO. So, without further ado, take us to the pilot. Flight 527, runway 8 Kilo, you're cleared for takeoff. All right. Well, we start off with those famous opening credits of Tony driving from New York to his home in North Caldwell uh, to Alabama Three's Woke Up This Morning. Now, it's one of those songs that you just know. You hear it and you think Sopranos. Synonymous with the show. The funny – I never knew this before, but the song is not about the mob or anything. It's about – if you really listen to the lyrics or the song, it's about a woman who's lived with her husband for 20 years and he's abusive. And so she, one day she decides to shoot him, get herself a gun and shoot him. Uh, it just okay. I, it was just one of those like doing research. And I'm like, I don't know, just that Snapple fun fact. Uh, but Not a total it, disconnect, though, from the show because the, the mo- most of the husbands on the show are abusive one way or another. True. I just think though, wherever Alabama three is like, yeah, you got that. You got history making song right there. You wouldn't think a mobster show would start with a man, man's first therapy session. But I think that's where we're not only at with a show like this, but, or with the genre, but also with the, the time, uh, 
but it starts with Tony waiting in Melfi's uh, waiting room, and he just kind of looks unsure, like whether he even needs to be here. And of course, Melfi wel- welcomes in, and you know it's awkward at first, and you find out like their neighbor recommended, uh, and also their neighbor is uh, Dino Cusumano, and he is their family physician, and he recommended Melfi to Tony. And, you know, they're talking and she's just getting to know him. What does he do for a job? He's in waste management consultant. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sure he is. And, uh, yeah, yeah, that's basically one of those jobs that you're like, oh, yeah, You hear sure. that, an eyebrow goes up whenever you hear like, oh, yeah, I'm in, I'm in waste management. Okay, uh, I won't ask anything more <laughs> about what you do. No, but, uh, yeah, I think Melfi immediately knows what tony's real profession is but uh yeah the reason tony's there is because he blacked out he passed out uh and there's no neurological there's no physical so it has to be something in him that something um mental going on what do you call it uh psychosomatic right if there's something yes something um you know subconsciously that causes a physical reaction so, uh, yeah, that's um, – and I feel like that's established very quickly. I think one of the things we'll see in this first episode is there's a lot that's established very quickly that almost makes you want to either rewatch or just make sure you pay close attention because then you – I don't want say you get lost, but, um, you know, there's it's, – it's very seamless the way they're able to get a lot of exposition out in a short amount of time. So, so Melfi wants to go – Tell me about the day of the panic attack. And so we start off in the morning and you get a little, uh, you know, little voiceover of Tony just talking about his life. And he basically states the theme of the show or one of the big themes of the show is lately I've been getting the feeling that I came in at the end. The best is over. This is a man at the end of an empire. The last man standing. That is such a crucial line, and we're only a few minutes in, but that's such a major theme. But this is this is the end of the mobster era, or, or towards the end of it. I, I mean, even Goodfellas too is really about the end of that whole era as well. So, um, but this is the nail in the coffin because most mobsters now in twenty twenty four are on YouTube or on like Fox News just like giving their consulting stuff. And that's, uh, you know, they got to make money somehow, but they definitely, I've seen, I think there are mobsters who have YouTube shows who just talk and like it's, that's where yeah, they're at. <laughs> you know what I, uh, I equate it to? It's like when an NFL player retires and then becomes a commentator on ESPN or something. <laughs> that's what these, some of these guys are like now. That life, you know, their, their playing career in the field is over so now all they have really left is to try to make something in the media about it and i guess nowadays that's mostly through youtube or social media which again it's funny because that's like the total opposite of what they were taught to do right like you never acknowledge this you never talk about it in public and now that's all they ever do and because again it's there's still so much appealed into that world but um you know, it's funny how the, the script flips so quickly. But, uh, we'll hear a lot about Tony's dad throughout the show and, what, and his impact on him. But one quote that really stuck out for me is like, I know that my life is better than my dad, but I feel like my dad had it better. 
And that right. like, like it just goes to show that like of course yeah, he he lives in a very nice house. Kids go to private school, but I think his dad was more free and could right. easily get it. They didn't have, you know, they didn't have to worry about rats or the government or the federal government coming in all the time. It was the early days for uh, his father. Their operations were much easier to get away with. They, there was always still the threat of the authorities trying to crack down and the FBI investigating. But yeah, certainly in the 60s and 70s, these guys had much more free reign to do what they want. And so that's interesting. Like for Tony, what does he value more? You know, like having the more, uh, you know, the bigger house and having more things, having more money, living a more luxurious life, or, you know, just having, having more power. And um, I think that also gets examined a lot more, but yeah, you know, right away, we're just constantly asking ourselves or questioning really what, what we're seeing on the surface. The American dream, basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, What's the cost of, of attaining that dream? So after he picks up his morning paper, uh, he goes outside, and one thing that he's been fascinated for for a while now is this family of ducks that's been coming out of the bushes and going into the pool. And he'll feed them bread. He kind of talks to them. He's like, oh, you know, is this ramp working for you? I'll do it. He's just fascinated with these ducks. And he walks into that pool in his robe <laughs> like he's wearing the robe he's not wearing a bathing suit he just walks right into the pool to go up to these ducks it's like we've known this character now for like all of 90 seconds and you know we're, we're seeing him one of our first impressions is him talking to ducks in his pool and it's just a it's an interesting way to introduce this character where okay like he definitely seems like something is troubling him he's acting unusually and and his family agrees with you because you know Meadow, Meadow's best friend Hunter, uh, Carmela, they're all looking at him through the window like he's at it with the ducks again. Uh, like they're talking about it like, of course, like oh dad's, dad's weird hobby, and uh, you know today Anthony Jr. Uh, it's his thirteenth birthday. It's a big day. We got the main set piece or the main event. But yeah, no, dad's at it with the ducks. Tony is still very much a dad throughout. Like, you know, he, he as much as he has mobster problems, he has to worry about like parent teacher stuff. He has to worry about, you know, college for Meadow, Anthony's grades. Uh, right, just, right. You, you see like his family in the kitchen acting like a normal family, right? Like the younger brother grossing at the older sister and yeah. that same, you know, the, the older daughter kind of having sass with the mom, right? They seem to be having a very typical dynamic with each other. And, so, but yeah, obviously there's a, that's a facade or at least, you know, it, it's they're They seem like the typical American family, but at the same time, they're not. Yes. But that's what makes them very relatable. I think a lot of moms and daughters could relate to that time when they were at odds because Carmela is not that big of a fan of her best friend because uh, Meadow wants to go join Hunter's family in Aspen for skiing. Uh, I think during New Year's. Uh, right. That That's like her objective, right? And at the same time, I think, you know, Carmela – Wants Meadow on her best behavior. She's only going to go if she's on her best behavior. And uh, again, like Meadow, this is a classic American teen, a little rebellion in her. 
Now, uh, Tony comes in, greets his family, and Carmela basically is wondering if he's going to be home for AJ's birthday. And you know, are you going to be home? You know, he's because work might get in the way, but he'll be home. Uh, and uh, he go. He's still telling Melfi that oh, my nephew Christopher Moltisanti drove me to work, and this is our first introduction to Christopher. And Christopher is basically. I think he's still older than us uh, at the time, but he he's still a young up and comer. He's like he's still a pawn, but he wants to be more. He wants to be taken seriously. Right. He's a soldier, and, uh, at least you know that's the official mob term. But you could see too that he's not really going to be showing a lot of initiative, or yeah, he's he's going to be learning how to be a mobster. Right? He's going to be making mistakes, like in this first scene with Tony. Yeah, he he's kind of making excuses as to why he's you know not doing what Tony's basically asking him to do. Like, oh, I, I wasn't feeling well, da da da. You know, he's not really uh, as reliable as Tony wants him to be. Uh, so that's yeah, you know, that that's uh, another recurring thing with that character. And as they're driving, they drive past they or they think they see. If I'm saying this guy Mahaffey. And yeah, I think I think Mahaffey. Yeah. Yeah, this guy. Oh, he's a degenerate gambler who owes them money. And like, oh, okay, pull over, pull over. Cut. Melfi stops the conversation to just lay out some ethical ground rules. Like she's starting to get a sense of who this guy is, and says, if you, like, if there's any talk of murder, like I have to report this, or even like someone getting hurt. Right, right. She has to draw the ground rules here just for Tony's sake because she's kind of anticipating where the story is going. She plays a little innocent. I think she says, listen, I don't know where the story is going, but she really does. And we're going to hear what Tony says to her, but we're going to see what actually happens, right? It's a little bit of – yeah. in this early part of the episode, Tony's kind of narrating, but uh, – Again, not the most reliable narrator, at least not when he's talking to Dr. Melfi. I do. Uh, Melfi's kind of that – of course, she's the audience, but it's also why we like uh, Mobster to throw back to the beginning of this discussion. It's like, oh, look, you're – she wants – she wants – she kind of knows what's behind the curtain because uh, throughout the ser- – uh, throughout the – a lot of her plot lines involve people going – you can't, why you like refer to him to someone else like he is a dangerous client but she still sticks with him and there is an interest there is a relationship not even a sexual relationship there is an an intimate uh relationship that she has with him but it does i think she's also fascinated with this guy's life too but she also has her career exactly and she also has her ethics as a doctor yeah which at times she questions. And that's also very interesting. There's like a very toxic dependency that they wind up forming with each other. And it's also like very much a, a tug of war a lot of the times because uh, you know there's times when Tony is very resistant to the therapy and wants to quit. There's times where Melfi wants to give up on him and refer him to someone else, but they keep coming back to each other. And we also see the toll 
that Tony takes as a patient. We see the toll that takes on Dr. Melfi uh, of during the series too. So yeah, it's uh, it, another interesting journey. And I don't think there's too many times we see that, that patient, that psychiatrist and patient journey go down this, this road. It's, uh, you know, it, 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 it's surprising where that road goes. Well, no one's ever had a patient like Tony Soprano. Uh, no, no, definitely not. Uh, and again, the, the allure is there, uh, as always. But we basically go back to his story, the one that he's not telling them, Elfie. They basically chase down this guy. They dry, they ran, they run him over. They break his leg. They start beating him because, yeah, where's my money? You owe me money. And then, yeah, there's a couple things about this scene, too. Uh, number one, you know, in the therapist's office, Tony assures Dr. Melfi, like, yeah, we just had coffee. But then the next shot is this Mahaffey guy dropping his coffee. I think that's very deliberate. <laughs> Good catch. Good catch. And as Tony is driving down this guy through this uh, the front of, like, an office park or something, he's this guy's running for his life, and Tony's chasing with the car, you're hearing this, like, old – 60s uh doo-wop song you know like oh, i wonder, wonder why, why. like yeah I, yeah that i think is one alluding to an older era like you know tony's father's era where he could do this a little more freely and i feel like we would see that sort of juxtaposition of lovey-dovey italian doo-wop song with violence we saw that a lot also in goodfellas so just um you know, a couple of connections there uh, that I that I got a kick out of watching this. Uh, and also, I think the, the first episode is the only one I'm aware of that has like a soundtrack. I think most of the time the show doesn't really have any music except in the credits. Um, so just a couple of notes I think are worth pointing out. You said you were in waste management. The environment. Dr. Cusimano, besides being your family physician, is also your next door neighbor. See what I'm saying? I don't know what happened with this fellow. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying. Nothing. We had coffee. So the next scene, he gets, uh, they're all sitting out in front of an Italian deli, uh, Catani's, but it's not Citrelli's. Uh, our first right, right. pilot. There's a lot of things in the pilot where you'll go like, hey, that's not, or that, what are they doing there? It's very like prototype Sopranos, right? Like not, very much. Not quite the right deli. Not quite the actors we'd see coming back to play a couple of the minor characters. Oh yeah, and uh, you know we meet two probably I was gonna say lovable, but like the guy I remember they were on an episode of uh, Hollywood Squares together. Uh, Sal Bi- Sal so Bigsby Bonciero and Polly Walnuts Gutierrez and. Uh, they're old friends. They go back. Where, they go back with uh, since Tony was a young boy, and they're basically. It. I'm not really uh, the first time I watched this. I didn't really care or notice what they were talking about. I was just getting the vibe. But I, you know, as when I rewatch it, especially when I rewatch the pilot, I was kind of interested in the business itself, and they're basically they're dealing with the Czechoslovakians who are bidding against them for a waste management uh job yeah contract i guess Con- with whatever, basically contracting and uh, whatever whatever district that is up for bid yeah. that they normally have the checks 
the Czech mafia wants to get in on. And I agree. I think the first time I watched the show, a lot of the weeds of their mob business would go over my head. Like, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to understand exactly how they make money, what their scheme is with the garbage industry. Uh, but I imagine, right, there's um, I don't know, some sort of extortion or some sort of uh, embezzlement of money with that business. Um, but you're right. I get to pay a little special attention to understand what exactly the issue is here because they go through it so quickly. But all you're getting is basically, I think Big Pussy says it's like it's a changing business. Like it's just, and that's what it is. Like, you know, you're getting more ethnicity uh, gangs just kind of creeping in. Like every everyone's out for something. It's a changing world, especially with like internet coming into the picture. Yeah, they're getting it's a, more competitors, uh, whether it's legit or, or um, you know, criminal competitors. I also want to just point out too, so Sal... Bompensero's nickname, what he's referred to is Big Pussy. I don't know when they establish how he gets that nickname, but from what I understand, it's because he was a cat burglar at one point, right? Is that why he has that nickname? Uh, I think so. I have to, like, I see, you're the one rewatching it. Like, I have, uh, it sounds so. And exactly. And I, I don't even remember when they established that, but that's just. For a character to have that name is so outrageous. I think, like, in the second or third episode, AJ refers to Big Pussy to someone else. He goes, oh, yeah, my Uncle Pussy is doing oh, yeah. me a favor. <laughs> it's like, what? Your Uncle Pussy? He says, uh, that, uh, he says that to uh, one of the episodes. It's like, oh, you know, AJ's not doing this well in science, and the teachers, the science teachers uh, car got stolen, and Big Pussy, one of his operation is, uh, you know, car you know basically carjacking like and a chop chop shop chop shop and he's like i'll keep a lookout for the car and they basically do this whole thing it's great and then you know oh i got my car back kind of it's like yeah my uncle pussy helped me that's it yeah that's exactly oh, it okay. yeah. but uh you know i i personally would not want such a nickname <laughs> i mean he's everyone calls him this you know yo puss what's going on you know tell pussy to do this or that and Oh my gosh, what a name for a character. And he's not even the only person in this episode with such a name. Yeah, basically. But uh, uh, Christopher basically takes it upon himself. He Once he steps up and goes, I'll help with the Czechoslovakians. Like that, make that my mission. And after that, Silvio Dante comes out and basically warns Tony that his uncle, Uncle Junior, is going to whack a uh, little pussy. Uh, uh, basically a, um, a a rat who is returning from Florida. He's going to be in Jersey. He's going to whack him in his another Tony's childhood friend, Artie Bucco. He's going to kill Little Pussy in the restaurant. Right. Vesuvio. Yeah, yeah. So, again, that's, that is all established. The stuff with the Czechoslovakians, the stuff with you know whacking this character we don't even see in Tony's friend's restaurant. It's all established. Very, very quickly. It's a slick scene. And there's almost even like a color filter in this scene that we don't we wouldn't see again. Right. That's why I, mean, I feel like they're experimenting a little bit with the cinematography here. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's like it, 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 it's very fast paced. And, um, yeah, taking notes on this, especially I had to like pause a few times. Like, wait, what exactly? Who exactly is involved in all this business? Yeah, no, it well, 
I think the first time I watched it, you know, I was I think I was in my I was in college basically because I've never seen it before. It was on binging was starting to become a real a thing, and I. I think I just enjoyed the vibe. At one point, you're just with binging. You're just kind of taking it all in, especially for a first time viewing. Uh, but anyway, uh, I was gonna say James Gandolfini. Tony goes to Artie Bucco's restaurant Vesuvio, and he sees his uncle, Uncle June. Uh, and Uncle June is yeah, his father's brother. And we'll find out. Like Uncle June has a lot of insecurities, but he basically is gonna be like, hey, you're gonna. You're going to Tony Anthony Jr.'s birthday, right? And uh, yeah, yeah. Then we also get a little bit. Uh, it's like a quick scene, but you know, Christopher and Tony they sit down at a table, and Christopher points out like, "Hey, if Junior ha- commits the hit here, it's going to hurt Artie's business." Oh yes, uh, and yeah, no. That's Vesuvio is where they go to eat. Vesuvio becomes a basically a set piece for all these eating engagements like a, you know it's an italian family a lot of business and interactions get done over food yeah exactly so typical you know it's like food always has to be involved there's a lot of eating on the show which which i appreciate again like in the italian american community food is just so vital to just everyday life it's as it is to many cultures obviously but uh you you, you Every episode, you see at least a few plates of pasta. Well, someone asked Edie Falco, like, how did you do each, you know, how did you do those eating scenes? And apparently, you know, you have food in front of you, but you have a piece of gum. Oh, very. That, that's a good trick. Yeah, instead of constantly eating all this food. I also want to point out in the in the earlier scene when uh, Tony's with the ducks and his family's in the kitchen. At one point, Carmela offers Meadow some sfogliadelle which is a word that is like a super local regional word <laughs> to like the the northeast Italian American community which i just think means like assortment of pastries but uh it's such like uh a bastardization of whatever italian word it originates from sfogliadel there's like another episode where tony tells christopher like go pick up some gabagool and sfogliadel <laughs> it's like what language are you even speaking at that point most people don't even know what you would be talking about you're talking to a polish kid here so uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay but fair i mean like you had to have heard i mean no, gabagool is like a big thing. i know gabagool i know gabagool but yeah no sfogliadel like it's uh, look i've had i make italian moms very happy because I, i'll eat anything they put in front well, I mean, you know, it's it's all ten out of ten the food, but uh, yeah, again, it's just a, a super regional word, right? And I, I'm again, I I'm not even a hundred percent sure that I know what it means. But uh, Tony Tony tells Melfi a little bit about Junior, and Junior is also like one theme of this show that we'll see with in both Junior, uh, Livia, and just any elderly. It's just getting old sucks and junior has a lot of insecurities i think he's now starting to come into some kind of power after all these years of playing second fiddle to his brother and then playing second fiddle to his nephew i think uh tony makes a note that uh that tony could have been a tony was into sports he was a football kid in high school but uh junior tells him he could never been a varsity athlete and that broke him yeah, and that broke him. That is such a 
in joke for the fandom of this show. And there's a scene like in season five where Junior brings it up a couple more times. You know, he never had the makings of a varsity athlete. I, I, I think it's funny, but for some reason, that particular aspect of Junior and Tony's relationship is just a fan favorite in joke that you see memefied a lot and just like in comments of YouTube clips and stuff like that. It's, it's, yeah, as you get into the show, there's like a whole culture among the fandom. And that's a major component. But I've been, I, I've been always thinking about that. It, it goes into detail, especially the relationship as the show goes on, of course, but Tony was kind of destined for this life. Kinda, but he like he only did a year and a half at Seton Hall, a semester and a half at Seton Hall, and but he could have gone into he could have been a really good athlete, but Junior kind of just kept him, like Junior and his mom kind of just kept him down and like said you're like basically melded him into this life that he is like he, he you always wonder what. Like, you know, he, he doesn't want his son, and Anthony Jr. wouldn't be good in this life. Right, he'd never he make want, it. He'd never make it, he, and he doesn't want this life for him. Uh, right, exactly. And he kind of, at, at times, doesn't even really want it for himself, or sometimes he resents the fact that he was put into this life. But at the same time, yes, he's very much shaped by his upbringing, and at times it seems like he was fated for this. But at the same time, yeah, Tony, a lot of times... Uh, doesn't want to accept accountability for his actions, right? Like he could have, if he really wanted to, he could have gone down a different road and had a different life with a more legitimate career. If he put his mind to it, uh, he certainly has a, a sense of business intelligence. Uh, so, you know, I, he, he, he falls back on, you know, that sort of thing, you know, instead of accepting his own actions. This is the kind of show that you can write essays about like really proper, analytical at essays as it has been done we, probably many times yeah. and we move on uh from one old timer to the next tony goes to see his mom livia and she is an old crock she like I, we've talked about her before but she is uh even calling her an old crock is kind of an understatement but tony brings her a cd player she doesn't understand it she immediately rejects it a broken cd for a broken record and uh such great writing. <laughs> That's such a great line. Like this, this scene just is just touching the surface of their relationship. But of course, Livia is getting older as well, and she's living by herself. And just like any child worries about their parent, older parent living by themselves, it's like it's time to maybe move. You know, they have the money to move you into a very nice retirement community. No, she even calls it a nursing home. She rejects it. How dare? Don't you even think about it? Um, but Tony, Livia still has her foot in, you know, her, her husband, uh, was one of the biggest mobsters in Jersey. Junior, of course, is still a mobster in Jersey. She, she, uh, she still has her foot a lot. Like all the wives in this, in this, uh, life are not in it, but they, right. Are. They, they, you know they what I mean? Have a presence, whether some like that or not. And Livia certainly, will use that to her advantage when she wants. Um, and just also, you know, this is where you're getting a lot of just very manipulative dialogue from Livia, right? She, she turns a lot of words back on Tony. She has a lot of negative and paranoid 
sensibilities you know like she doesn't take calls after dark you just this is her introduction to this character who is just very grating but uh obviously like she causes a lot of really uh tense drama for for tony well, I, constant I, obstacle for him i think she says like oh you know daughters are better at helping their moms than uh, caring for their moms and sons and he's like yeah both your daughters left the state as soon as they could drive like right there's no basis for her to say that like yeah. what it, it's just uh, mean it's just it, like she's just yeah she's just trying to say as many things to dig at tony as possible even when he's leaving it's like i have to go to work she's like yeah run off and slams the door right she's just she takes every opportunity to put him down but he wants uh, Livia to talk to Uncle Junior to convince him not to do the hit at Artie's restaurant. And and at the end, he wants to confirm her for AJ's party. Right. Uh, she's she's going to bring the ziti. Yeah. yeah I, I'm sure her ziti is excellent. But as we find out in the next scene, she is not coming. Uh, Anthony Jr. is very like where's annoyed. The, annoyed. He's spoiled, Brad. He's such a spoiled kid. Uh, uh, well, he say, he says, oh, so what? No fucking ZD now? <laughs> that's right. And the priest even, like, they invite the family priest. He gets like, hey, don't speak like that. And the first, you'll come to find out that this priest will be later recast. The, one of the first recastings. Uh, but we're here at the birthday party. Tony's grilling. And he's putting some, uh, he's putting some lighter fluid and then he sees the du- he's looking at the ducks in the pool, and suddenly they fly away. As ducks do, the you know the ducklings learn how to fly, and they leave the leave the nest, or in this case, the pool. But to Tony, that caught he's starting to have he's starting to breathe heavy, he's starting to get dizzy, and he collapses on the lawn. And uh, <laughs> of course, you know the fire gets big, and Don uh, Sylvia has to put that out. But yeah, no, we then. Uh, you know, they're doing all the tests and we then go to a MRI machine. And this is where our first real scene with Tony and Carmela. Yeah. And is it is it me or does Tony look like he's about to be put into a casket or something? There was something about this shot, him lying there on the slab about to go into this scanner to me that was trying to allude to to death even. Probably like it's and the only person, you know, I, I said before that the most important relationship in the show, or one of the most, is Melfi and uh, Tony. But your wife, Carmela, is the one who knows Tony. Even though he doesn't share everything with her, she knows him. She's been with him since high school. Well, she is aware of the things that he doesn't even want her to know about. Because it's just some things are too obvious. So his unfaithfulness, for example, and uh, they have an argument about that. And obviously it's a big sticking point for her that Tony has this uh, guma, as they're called. He has this mistress. But I, I always figured, especially in this episode, you kind of, having watched the series uh, a couple times now, Tony is whoever, Car- he wants Carmela Carmela is whoever Tony wants her to be, whether it's his best friend, his wife, co-parent. Does he love her? Yes. Is he in love with her? Sometimes when when she really gets him, she's there for him a lot of the time. But yeah, no, it's just he gets bored easily. He can he'll he he's still a bully. He's still he's still a very immature 
man. Right. He is uh, a man of temptations, you could say. So, And it's also a big thing with these mobster guys. It's just kind of accepted – maybe not accepted, but it's just – Establish that all these mob guys have a mistress, a goomba. It's how it's done, right? It's how it's which is done. such a funny. It sounds like it sounds like they have a goomba from from Mario, but no, they have they all have a goomba, and it, it's just part of this this power trip. They feel like they can have everything they want. They can have a wife and they can have a girlfriend. Um, and you know, poor Carmela. I feel like she is constantly getting shit from everybody. She has an unfaithful husband. She has a teenage daughter that's constantly giving her crap, uh, a petulant son. And she's always just trying to be the best mother and wife that she can be. And also like she, she turns to her faith a lot of times too. So she's probably the character with the largest moral compass on the show. But even yeah, within the context of being a mobster's wife, that's, there's still a lot of hypocrisy that comes with I was that. About, so, I was about to say like, she is, yeah. she, you know, as long as the money is flowing through and everyone – she enables it in a way just because – Oh, yeah. She's not an innocent character no. by any means. But, yeah, there are – She's conflicted. Right. There are times where she does act like the the voice of reason and she does know what the right thing to do is. But quite often she she's not going to really uh, try to stop people from – especially Tony from doing the wrong thing. And she's also one of the very, very few people who can tell Tony to go fuck himself to his oh, face. Oh, yeah. Not only – but also I think there's a little bit – it reminds him of his mom if we're getting a little analytical. Like just that kind oh. of like I can tell you off to your face not only because right. I'm your wife but because I'm that – I'm just – had that kind of relationship with you. I mean there's definitely a lot of uh, Oedipal themes oh, very in much. this show. They get brought up. And there's there's one line, too. Last thing I'll say about this scene with Carmela and Tony. There's a line that Melfi brings up a few seasons later where she says um, to Tony, you'll never leave her, but she will leave you. Oh, yeah. And uh, I think that's a good way of looking at the the dependency and where maybe the true power lies in this marriage. I had some good times. Have some good years. Here he goes now with the nostalgia. Hey, all I'm saying is no marriage is perfect. Well, having that Kumar on the side helps. I told you I'm not seeing her anymore. How do you think I feel having that priest around all the time? Don't even go there, all right? Father is a spiritual mentor. He's helping me to be a better Catholic. Yeah. Well, we all got different needs. What's different between you and me is you're going to hell when you die. Now, Christopher, uh, you know, he, he invites the, one of the Czech guys over to that meat marketplace. Uh, a meal or email uh and you know they're you know they wanted to they're gonna talk business they're gonna do coke together and the minute Emil bends over to do a line christopher shoots him in the back of the head and i do believe that's his first kill i think that's the show's first kill at least that's on very screen. good point yes i can't say it for other shows or just as much as my tv knowledge goes but it's nice to see a show that has repercussions and consequences even though each episode is different and it might not happen right away uh your actions very literally come back to haunt you <laughs> oh absolutely this 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 kill and this person's body this will come back sometime later they'll have to deal with this um i think he has to dig up the body at one point a few years later 
And yes. you're right. It's it's a show where a character would be killed off, but it doesn't mean that their presence in the show is totally gone. Whether they come back in a dream sequence or whether the the fallout from that death will will uh, play out over several episodes. So you're right. There's there's a lot of consequences to violence, which is another important thing that I will connect to Goodfellas as well. Uh, that does show like that that the storytellers are not condoning this violence they are portraying it in a way but also they they are you know they're not promoting it right and you can and that and that is through the consequences that come back to haunt these characters no they're showing it as is uh right right so uh tony goes to meet with june outside vesuvio's and he's basically trying to talk him out of doing the hit and uh junior basically like i said before has insecurities and lashes out at Tony. He's like, I, I could have been. He basically gives him that I could have been something speech. I like, like. There's a lot of resentment. He says, and, "How many times did I play catch with you?" And of course, you know, an older guy, it's it's going to be very um, put out by someone who's a younger generation. You know, his nephew giving him orders. Uh, that's I, I think a lot of people would be put off. I mean, if if I'm in junior's position, yeah, you, you feel like you get to that age, you've earned a certain amount of respect and and power, or at least you know you, you would feel like you would not be getting orders from someone who you helped raise in a way. Uh, so I, I I like the junior character. I think this is uh, Dominic um, Kianese is is I think I pronounce his last name. Uh, he was in Godfather too. Like he oh like, right the, yeah the, he played. Uh, the Jewish gangsters number two, uh, uh, Mar- uh no. Arnold, not Arnold Rothstein. I'm forgetting the in Godfather two, the Jewish gangster, but he, a very young man. But there's a, like a lot of that. I don't think a lot of people knew who these people were. These a lot of the actors were, were but they were unknown. around. They were around. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, that experience. But that's another authentic part of the show as well. It's not like you casted like. You know, I don't know. It's not like you casted Robert De Niro as the lead, for example. So, so Melfi interjects and says, let's go back to talking about your immediate family. And that's where we get a scene. The, you know, the priest is over. He's having wine with Carmela. It seems like a regular occurrence. It's, a, it's weird, kind of, but they have a very close relationship. And all this, you know, from one life to the other, Carmela hears a noise of someone sneaking in and gets the shotgun. She gets the gun. It was like a hunting rifle. Yeah, and you know, I'm surprised that priest went back. Uh, but uh, yeah, right. They find Meadow. I, she was sneaking back in, but Anthony Jr. locked the window and got her in trouble. But she's grounded. Aspen is off. I hate you. Oh uh, yeah, again, typical. I mean, a little extreme with the with the gun. <laughs> Such a giant gun. Understandable but- though. Like you in in their life. That that just goes to show that like their life, that's fair. They're not. That's safe. a good point. Yeah, and Carmela is very well aware of the dangers that Tony faces that could bleed over to her family. Uh, but I don't think we'd ever see Carmela handling a gun like this for the rest of the series. Um, uh, just just to point that out. Uh, yeah, but certainly this tension. That's another big part of it. You know, there's there's dysfunction at home that Tony is kind of removing himself from you know oh it'll 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 blow over right that's his attitude about it and so um yeah he has his hands-off approach that doesn't really work so melfi kind of she first brings up the idea of 
depression like have you ever like what what's your take on it and uh you know tony looks over sees the melfi name and goes like where you where's your family from and you know they start talking about their italian heritage you know she's from her family's from here where are you on the boot i think he says or something like that right right yeah it's very italian american way of referring to your heritage right like the and boot. uh i'm not uh i'm sure this goes uh, this is part of our dad's generation it even goes beyond italian culture but men of that era just were not open like therapy even for the past until the past couple of years people were like it would there was a a stigma. The stigma, but the stigma started getting less and less. Right. It's been time. more accepted to seek out yeah. uh, help for mental health, right? Yeah. And certainly uh, Tony comes from a generation, and, and he was raised certainly by a generation yeah. that felt that men especially should uh, keep their issues to themselves, which uh, obviously is not the healthiest way to go about it. But it's a changing world, and you know he's not the mobster of the '80s, '70s, '60s. Like you know, therapy is. I at this point, it's starting to become more prevalent, and, uh, you know, uh, Melfi suggests the idea that ever since the ducks left, that's when his depression started creeping in. He leaves. He doesn't want to hear it. Right, and this happens a lot. Where when Tony is confronted by the truth, he flees. Or other times when. When Melfi is trying to get him to the truth, she's trying to walk him to the truth, he'll kind of beat around it, play coy, right? Like there's there's times where she's spelling it out for him what the truth is that might be causing his issues, and he doesn't want to admit to it and he'll, he'll play dumb. And so he'll you know, play it, dumb or get aggressive. Oh yeah, it's it's either one or the other. He'll it, when he no longer can play dumb and she does spell it out for him, that's when you know he he will uh you act more aggressively. It's the fight or flight response, literally. <laughs> Basically. Uh, so he storms out, and then we cut back to Christopher, the young gun, asking an old veteran to help him out with, with disposing of the body. And they're having trouble tossing it into the dumpster. And Pussy kind of lays him out, lays out all the consequences of killing Emil. And, that, you know, uh, and also Chris, I noticed that Chris can't quote the Godfather. He makes like a, like Luza Brazi, you know, it's Luca Brazi. Yeah, yeah, he butchers a line. That's what I said. There's so many like misquoting and malapropisms by all these characters that, uh, it, it, and there's another one later on, but it, it can be quite funny at times. Just a way to maybe undercut some of the tension. But yeah, and, and all, uh, they lay out all the consequences, not even just with the uh, rival gang, but with the feds, just everyone looking into their business. Pussy's been at this for decades and uh so and christopher just you know shoot first do anything later type kind and uh so they decide to stash uh dismember the body in staten island which will of course like we mentioned before it will come back later to haunt him so we then cut to a retirement home and i think livia just it's just a nice family trip according to livia but you get a you know, Carmela and Meadow are still at odds. And uh, Livia notices the nursing unit, which is her biggest fear. And, she, you know, once she realizes where she's at, where they've taken her, she has a freak out. Like, what the hell? Like, I knew it was a nursing home. Get me out of here. And as they try to calm her down, 
Tony passes out again. Yep, that's right. And I feel like Livia, she's kind of maybe acting more concerned than she really is. Like she sees Tony fall down and it, it takes her like a like a, a quick a beat. There's like a notable pause where she finally says, like, somebody do something. <laughs> right? Because she she kind of revels in Tony's misery. So I feel like she sees this and maybe doesn't know how to react in that moment. I don't know. Like granted, this is a whole series retrospective, but like you know, you do have to ask, does Livia love Tony? And your of course, your first reaction is like, of course, that's her son. But Livia doesn't show any respect to Janice either. Uh, like it's, no, it, like no. it really is. Like I think she, this life was thrusted upon her, and because of her time, she was she was not fit to be a mom, and just kind of had three kids. Uh, you know. Kind of, I don't want to say use them as an ashtray, but she's probably smoking and the, the ash is going into the gravy. But it just seems like. Uh, well, she yeah. certainly took out any frustrations or resentments oh, uh, that she had on. about her life. Right. On her kids, especially Tony. And so that continues until their adult life. And I mean, it, it, it goes very far in this first season. I mean, you know, to people who watch, I mean, would you think Livia is just maybe emotionally abusive? I mean, the lengths that she goes to to get back at Tony for perceived or actual slights is way farther than you might think a mother would go. Um, so with Tony passing out, he finds himself back in Melfi's office and the topic of mothers come up. And yeah, no, it's it's he finds it funny that like, you know, Olivia called like your father was a saint. But right you know, she, now that she, he's dead. Wore, she she hated she hated him she wore him down and he and he saw it all like there's no denying it uh and it that's when we start to peel back a layer of uh what we kind of talked about before he's just not getting any satisfaction from his work and he kind of describes himself as the sad clown like he you know he's putting he's everyone thinks that he's happy and he's putting on a face but i thought that was actually pretty insightful he's for, crying for on the inside yeah yeah to say to describe himself in such a way as the sad clown you know that's um it's it's pretty it's it's a pretty good comparison to make and it's one that i don't think the tony that we that we get developed later on would compare himself to it's kind of funny that this is the leap in the first episode that a character takes like you know you wouldn't you would expect the character to make this monologue Maybe at the end of the first season or something like that. It's, uh, but well, you know, it shows that he does have some insight into his own psyche. That again, he's maybe not as willing to to examine as closely uh, as he should. Yeah, but you know, he complains no one has any values anymore. There's too many rats. You got the government up your ass. And yeah, no. With all this, Melfi decides that let's try to get you into some prescription drugs to help cope with all this. And that's the Prozac comes up and Prozac at the time was also kind of rearing its head in that 24 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is uh, People weren't exactly sure yet what the side effects would be. There is a funny line too. Tony brings up like, Oh, you know, one of the things I have to deal with is uh, Rico and Melfi at first says, who's oh, that? Yeah. Your brother? It's <laughs> <laughs> like, no, no, the Rico case. So again, like misunderstandings like that, uh, there's there's like 
you know, very um, unexpected moments of humor derived in these conversations. So uh, we go to a another famous set piece in the show, the Bada Bing. The Bing. And uh, Tony's having a meeting with his one of his father's old friends, a Jewish businessman. Lone, I would say, like Pesh. Loan Shark. I think he's. Uh, I've looked up. He's he's like his his main business has. He has a lot of businesses, but one of which is being a, a loan shark. Yeah, and they're talking about uh, basically. Uh, on one end, they're talking about the Tony Jr. situation, and they're trying to think of ideas on how to maybe get out of it and hesh gives him the idea of just you know if the, if the restaurant's closed you can't have the hit and yep. uh have junior have um have Artie go out of town yeah i think that's you know any idea won't works in this case but on the other end they're also talking about this McAfee guy and hesh tells him that he doesn't have the money and tony has the idea since uh this guy works in insurance that mri machine Cost him at least two grand to do. Why don't, in a very mob-like fashion, we can have this guy set up fake insurance claims, and you know it's either they'll set up like fake clinics, I guess. Like they'll they'll like on paper these things will exist, but not in actuality. And um, yeah, it's it's basically just a form of extortion, right? Yeah, and fraud. Yeah, and exactly. uh, and it's either you know you either he does this, he pays, or you know. He dies. <laughs> right, right. The guy doesn't really have much of a choice. There's also a great line, too, at the end of the scene uh, with this idea that Tony's coming up with this uh, insurance scam. You know, Hesh likes the idea, and he's like, oh, this this could be as big as garbage, as big as their garbage scam. And Tony's like, could be bigger. Christopher is like, wait a minute. Garbage is our bread and butter. And Tony says, was. Just goes to show times are changing. You know, the old business model, the mob can't run like it used to. Uh, so I, I like that already the show is hinting that, you know, things things are – you can't go back to the way things used to be. Back at home, we find, a, you know, a little piece of, you know, Carmela hides some money in fake soup cans. And uh, this, she kind of offers an olive branch to Meadow, reminding – like, let's go get tea under the Eloise portrait in New York City. A tradition that they've had every year. Meadow is such a high school girl. Like, you know, I hated doing that. I only did it for you. I want to do this. And yeah, she's really trying to hurt Carmelo. Like, I never liked doing that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, they fight. It ends. Like, they, she wants to go skiing in Aspen. Um, well, you know, Carmela tells Meadow, like, you can't just break whatever rules you want. And that that is what I was talking about before with the hypocrisy. Right, because Carmela knows fully that that's how Tony operates. Tony does whatever he wants to do, and uh, you know Carmela's just trying to be a good parent in this moment. But I think, as we would learn later, Meadow is also kind of suspicious about her father, and so any any lessons into morality, she's not going to be able to take seriously, just because she knows, um, you know, what her father is is true, what he truly is. The older sibling always knows, uh, but. We go back to uh, Tony visiting Artie at Vesuvio's and kind of comes up with this, like, you know, I guess because he's the a union guy, uh, waste management, like, oh, you know, the dentist union, they gave me uh, free tickets to the Caribbean and I can't go. So you and uh, Charmaine can go. Uh, yeah, it's such an unbelievable story that obviously Artie's going to believe because he trusts Tony, like they're, they're childhood friends. 
But uh, and I'm like, man, how many pots does Tony have his hand in? He's like a union guy for whatever that he would get free tickets. Supposedly, I mean, it's a lie, but he he definitely does have his hand in a lot of these different like you know unions and local businesses and stuff. But uh, <laughs> what a what a ridiculous story. And I think because Tony's on, he's feeling good about it. Tony uh, already accepts he's feeling good. He doesn't need therapy because uh you know he misses his appointment he's not there for his appointment with melfi he misses the next one so i think they just needed that one scene to cut to Artie and his wife charmaine arguing charmaine gets it like she sees what's going on like someone had to get their kneecaps broken for to get those tickets to you she hates that the mob is associated with her restaurant she hates that they get that clientele because yeah that delegitimizes what they're trying to do she doesn't want to be part of that world and uh that also comes back a lot throughout the show just that constant resentment of tony and yeah being a presence within her 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 husband's life and in her business and also he's that, kind of a cancer he's kind of a cancer yeah, like he anytime absolutely. he gets involved in something it, it usually yep. gets fucked right charbane is a very intelligent character and uh i like that she is constantly trying to pull Artie away from tony because she's right she she absolutely should pull Artie away from tony and uh that line again when she says like somebody donated their kneecaps for those tickets What's the next thing we see is that Mahaffey guy in crutches. So deliberate and perfect. So, you know, they're walking past, uh, like you said, McAfee's in crutches. He's walking with Hessian pussy. They're trying to figure something out. And he's basically saying, no, like, I cannot do this. Like, I, this, like, I can't do this for my job. And Hesh is basically laying it all out without laying it all out. He's like, it's like, like don't you're a smart guy like be smart right now and then you know they're crossing over this giant bridge and hesh basically is like hey do you want to go see the bottom yeah Uh, they they in so many words uh are like alluding to him going over this bridge if he doesn't cooperate all the witnesses uh, leave the the ice cream truck the kid on the bike pussy is like throwing like I don't know bread or something over the bridge, right? They're they're spelling it out as Good much call. as they possibly can. And uh, yeah, okay, yeah, uh, McAfee agrees. Like, yeah, yeah. And that moment, he's like, "All right, fine, <laughs> whatever you want." So yeah, uh, Tony's waiting in a driving range, and he, you know, he takes, he start, he's on the medication, he, and he's waiting for someone. And uh, if I, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh. There's a lot that happens in this sequence. Like he's at a driving range, he's taking Prozac, and, and yeah, one of his associates Pauly. comes up and yeah, uh, Polly calls him over. Like T, like you know, we got some news for you. And Artie's looking for him, and Artie is, uh, you know, I can't accept the tickets. Uh, I'm sorry, and so basically that plan is out. Right, right. I think uh, Tony also learns that the Czech mafia backed off from their garbage bid so in that that's right in that respect christopher you know albeit misguidedly was able to uh you know help help out that situation scared them you come here when possible hey uh listen those decorated tips you gave me they uh they really work good how you doing niels niels do you know who that was I mean, well, I mean, obviously you do. What, what, is he a patient? You know I can't say. So, at a New York restaurant, uh, 
where another, you know, we see a, a Drea DiMatteo as the hostess, and you're like, Andrea, and I don't think it's Adriana, Andrea. yeah. Adriana, and you're like, yeah, not I quite. I mean, it could be, right? You can just like imagine, like, oh, this is Adriana, I guess, but like she obviously doesn't react to Tony in a way that Adriana would later. So I imagine that, um, you know, she gets this minor part, David Chase. Likes this actress, Liked her, yeah, and then uh, wrote this character for her. Thankfully, because Jared Mateo is is so likable and so great as Adriana. She won an Emmy too, I think for she season did. five. Yeah, um, but Melfi Melfi's divorced. Uh, she's on a date. He can't get a table, and Tony walks in with his guma, uh, Irina. Also, not the Irina that we come to know. Uh, right, but, right. Another casting change, and. Uh, he, you know, he spots Melfi and, you know, keeps it, you know, oh, thank you again for the window drapes. How you doing? Uh, <laughs> drapes. <laughs> and he, No one's buying that. Yeah, well, not her not her date because he's like, do you know who that is? Like, you obviously know. And Tony manages to get them a table. So there are some – once again, it's like it, there's some fun perks, but ethically, like, you're playing with fire. Oh, absolutely. And uh, again, like the allure of Tony is, you know, I, I think Dr. Melfi is, doesn't know what to make of that, right? I think the, her date is obviously like, he went from being off put by Tony to now being like, oh, sweet, like we got her on table. But Dr. Melfi certainly in that moment is now kind of second guessing this relationship with this patient. Yeah, but it, it, Tony ends the night on his boat, the Stugats. He has sex <laughs> what a with, name. With uh, Irina. And the first of many interesting love interests that Tony will have over the course of the series. He has many a guma. But uh, yeah, to now we go to a different kind of dinner. Tony and Carmela are out, and uh, this is where they feel like co-parents or business partners at first. And, uh, you know, Tony is like, I got to tell you something. And she is ready to basically throw the drink in his face even more, like more so, like hurt him. Right. She thinks that he's about to confess to his affair. And uh, he admits that he's on Prozac and is seeing a therapist. And in the, Carmela thinks that's the best thing for him. Like, funny, she's like, oh, uh, you know. She's excited. It can't address the soul, but it's a start. Like, she, she knows a guy like Tony. She's known since high school. He needs something like this. Yeah, yeah. I think she's, she's very happy that he's getting professional help and hopefully is the beginning in her eyes for him to being um, not just, like, happier, but also functioning in a, in a more healthy way, like as a husband, as a father, right? And maybe curtailing some of his uh yeah his 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 immoral behavior well she also knows that like livia is probably responsible for uh, <laughs> the reason he's in there like she's uh, saying like did you mention did you mention your mother it's her it's her and she's right you know she's uh, the livia is obviously a big part of tony's dysfunction a little bit of uh if you notice it on a rewatch tony doesn't mention melfi's a girl or a woman right He's very ambiguous about it because they say them. Like, did you tell them? And he's like, yeah, I mentioned it to M. Like, you know, E-M. Like, I mentioned it to him. Uh, like, yeah, that comes up later. And I think in a different episode uh, causes some issues. And uh, Tony gives some good best friend, father, I love you advice. Like, 
he reassures Carm about Meadow. Like she'll come, like she'll come around. Like she's just a teenage girl type stuff. And uh, Christopher, he's with his guma, uh, kind of celebrating. He calls the house, and Meadow answers. And they had, I, I, I uh, Christopher is not really his nephew, but they're so close that he basically is. So it's basically a cousin talking to another cousin. Like that is the it. vibe like, I get. Yeah, and I, 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 we learn eventually that Christopher is actually Carmela's cousin. I believe, but there is a bit of an age gap there. So that's why Tony takes on this um, uncle or really more like a paternal role in Christopher's life. But he's calling to tell Tony himself that uh, the guy that Junior wanted to have whacked little pussy is getting arrested. Something's going to happen soon, basically. So uh, Tony and Sylvia talk plans and Silvio has a daughter in Carm's uh, in Meadows class like He's a father. He complains about the coach when the coach leaves. Like he has, uh, his daily life. Uh, but right, uh, they're really playing like, really in the same moment now. We're seeing Tony and Silvio, uh, as mobsters and fathers in in the yeah. same moment, and that's that's kind of fascinating. One second they're scheming about how to resolve Junior's like hit at the restaurant and the next second they're like oh ref what are you doing right they're um they switch back and forth so seamlessly it's almost kind of chilling so after after practice or after the game tony's and meadow are walking and uh meadow of course thinks mom's overreacting about everything and tony decides to take her into the church and you know they sit down and he basically kind of talks about you know our family built this my great great grandfather and his brother built this with their bare hands but they were part of a team like there were it was a it was a group of people who built something that still stands something so beautiful that still stands and he's kind of talking about his legacy like his father and his brother built uh and also the Jackie April which we'll get to like a lot of people took to create that North Jersey mob and Tony's a part of something beautiful Right. They built maybe not something physical, but they built this organization, this business and this lifestyle. Right. They built something that affords them to live and provide for their family a very upscale lifestyle. Um, although I, I do love, again, the hypocrisy coming up because Tony's going on about how much their family's legacy is building things. And then the very next moment, we see Silvio walking away from Vesuvio as it explodes. And it's like, well, they actually are causing more destruction than anything else. It's like one of those situations where, like, I had no other – like, it was either – it was the best option for everybody to blow it up. (laughs) Right, right. That – to – you know, to help Artie, he had to destroy Artie's restaurant. To save it, he had to destroy it. And uh, that's a plot, actually, that becomes very vital later on in season one is, is Tony plotting to destroy Vesuvio. But there will be a Nuovo Vesuvio that Artie will run later. Now, uh, we're nearing the end of this. He goes back to Melfi, Melfi's, and, uh, you know, he feels good. Yeah, the, like, I've never been better. Maybe it's the Prozac, but it's not. Prozac takes a while to kick in. But uh, Melfi thinks the therapy's working and, like, encourage him. I think if uh, he becomes, like, a twice-a-week patient, 
And what I find, I mean, this scene is probably one of the best scenes in the pilot because you really, like, Tony talks about his dream that he had uh, where he's trying to unscrew his belly button and his penis ends up falling off and a bird grabs it and flies off. Now, in uh, you know, let's talk about the dream a little. What 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 bird has been prevalent in your life, Tone? The ducks. Well, like and, he doesn't. He she's trying to get him there, and again, this is yeah. what I was talking about before. Like, what duck was it, Tony? Like, was it a water bird? Maybe. What kind of water bird? Maybe a seagull. Maybe a pelican. Like he just really does not want to face up to the truth that is facing him, and this dream too. Uh, is I feel like it's a dream that is a plausible dream. I'm sure people have had similar kinds of dreams, right? Like they lose their manhood in such a way. It's like your teeth falling out. Um, but the show is so good at giving Tony these dream sequences, whether you see them or not, that are like a dream someone could have. They're surreal enough, but is really spot on to his psyche. And even like, I think some other characters too, you'll see their dream sequences once in a while. But um you know, that's it, it's so interesting to see those sequences because it takes you into this whole other surreal world. But uh, Melfi gets him to really he was so happy when he was with those ducks, like smile on his face, talking to them. And when those ducks flew away. That's when all that depression hit. And it just kind of shows that, like, even in those moments of happiness, in your kind of life, those moments are fleeting and they could be gone like that. And those ducks do represent your family and you'll have a great moment. With those really great moments with your family can be gone like that. And I, the, the shocking thing about this pilot and coming from a man from like Tony Soprano is he breaks down. He starts crying. He does. It's such a great performance from James Gandolfini in this scene because you could tell he's resisting and he he we finally breaks down it comes out like the floodgates and it is powerful it's it is it, it really is and and you know this this fear too yeah he realizes he's afraid of losing his family and dr melfi says you know what exactly are you afraid is going to happen but you know a lot can he happen. can't say he can't he can't say he can't say but obviously like you know he can get arrested or he can be killed like he he's the one who'd be taken away not his family but the idea of you know him being separated from them which at the same time like he he he's not there that often for them either right he's off doing these other things and maybe it's his way of providing for them but at the same time there is a distance there that he's not really doing much to to fix we could be talking about the finale as well because that last scene makes so much sense with this pilot in, in context. It, the that full moment circle. of happiness, that full circle, and that maybe that's why David Chase wanted to direct the pilot. But yeah, uh, I think he had the pilot in mind when he was writing and directing. So that is the climax, I would say, of this uh, of this gangster show. The emotional so, climax. The emotional sure. climax. So we end at uh, – we kind of just do the epilogue a little bit at the uh, the family BBQ – Artie, of course, is beside himself. Uh, you know, they're blaming it on a faulty power uh, stove line. And you know, Paulie's like, "Hey, you can collect insurance." It's not all. They're really trying to like look on the bright side here. We basically saved Vesuvio's from the the, the reputation. 
Right. They but, can't yeah. really tell him why this is a better outcome than what might other would have happened. But um, but uh, yeah, Artie lost his basically his life, so he starts crying. And Tony, what he had built, right? Yeah, but that was his legacy. What Tony, Tony throughout the series will implement his stuff that he uh, learned in therapy, and he is very empathetic. And of course, he's he's empathetic to one of his best friends. He gives him a hug. He helps him. But yeah, he's using he's using the same kind of talk that Melfi used on him. Tried to like, it's okay to feel this way, type stuff. Yeah, he tells Artie, you know, it helps to talk about it because that's yeah his big lesson too. You're right. Uh, he a lot of times will re- will reiterate some of the things he's he's learned in therapy uh, into his mob life, which is so interesting. And uh, he goes to see Chris, who's kind of also beside himself, but for a different reason. He's just he. All he wanted was like a way to go, Chris, for killing a meal, kind of save, not saving the day, but like doing doing the job well. And he's he's feeling underappreciated. And you know, I could have sold my story to Hollywood; they would have taken it. And Chris is also Chris being fascinated with movies in general. Marty Kundun, I liked it. I, I love that line. Uh, yeah, but. Uh, with mean, the Hollywood thing too—that's such a big part of his story as well. Yeah. So uh, just but, a lot of a lot of seeds that in this very first episode. But the, Tony also said, like you know, they're all selling their stories. They're all like giving us like, like also a well, changing like, world. Like, like uh, Nick Pelleggi for Goodfellas, right? Yeah. That's one such example. But uh, once again, it, uh, Tony kind of slows down, calms himself, and just goes, you know what? I was wrong. You did a really good job. No one like. No, they didn't really do that back in the day, but we need to start. Good job, Chris. You did really good out there. Yeah, and trying uh, to be a better leader. It really is a beautiful day. It re- like the, like the show could go anywhere, but we uh, Junior is driving Livia, and they're talking about the old days. Like that's a the the time comes for everybody, and uh, she Olivia is just a lady Macbeth. She she knows what she's saying, and Junior's she's too stupid so to not notice. I'm so, and uh, Junior's basically saying he wants a bigger piece of the pie, like I get, I want what I deserve, and Tony is standing in my way, and right. Livia There's something got to be done about that Tony, and Livia, kind of isn't like oh yeah something like I'll allow it, and she you can see the hint of a smile. Uh, the only one of the few smiles that she'll ever have on the show and you're right she is very much like a lady Macbeth to juniors as a Macbeth in this first season but not the only one you know in season two Janice is like the lady Macbeth to Richie April right and it's these sort of things come up again but intentionally so you see how like the dysfunction the manipulation gets passed down like mother like daughter yeah and uh the last scene is uh Livia and uh junior arrive Hey, everybody, they're here. Let's eat. And they all go inside, and the camera pans to an empty pool. That is the end. I, I also like that uh, Livia gets a few more jabs at Tony. Like, you're using mesquite? That's going to make the sausage taste weird. Uh, <laughs> like she, she always has a comment about something, which, uh, oh, man, it's, it's who can live with such a person? I always, I'm not saying I, every old person I meet is like that, but a, a lot of old people, including my parents who are getting up there, they always say, never get old. And it just – and Junior well, Olivia at one is point more... says – Junior says at one point, it's like, I should have listened to my father, never get old. 
Yeah, right, right. Well, you know, not many people that he worked with back in the day did get old, right? A lot of those guys. Very true. You know, a lot of them die young. Uh, but Livia obviously is more deliberate about her nastiness. Uh, but yeah, at the end of the episode. Um, purposely, yeah. It's, yeah. But the pool is gone. And, uh, you know, it's kind of an ominous ending a bit. You know, the, maybe that, 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 that nice little family of ducks they're not they kind of represent a bit of innocence uh but they're no longer there you're right that's the link a connection i'm afraid i'm gonna lose my family like i lost the ducks that's what i'm full of dread about it's always with me what are you so afraid is going to happen so there we have it. I know we went on a lot about this pilot. <laughs> this there's a lot to say. There's, discussions. It, it, there's a lot to dissect because there's just so much thought that the writers put into this show that we feel is worth calling out. For a show like this, like once again, this show is on – I think we can officially place it on prestige drama television like on the Mount Rushmore like it deserves uh, well like once again you could write essays about this show and I think we just did. Well, I, yeah, just on the pilot. I mean, we did talk a lot about things that happened later on in the show, but with the pilot too, there is a lot of very smart writing, a lot of great cuts, a lot of great visual ironies and verbal ironies, and it's and you know, in a pilot, especially one that is going for very high-level writing, you want to show off a little bit. You want to maybe show the kind of things you're going to get. You know, maybe not so much, it's not so intensely, but obviously they're trying to maybe show off a bit of the writing flair here. That's what David Chase is trying to do. The potential, right? That uh, there's so much to mine here. And, um, you know, so in later episodes, maybe there won't be as much exposition all at once. It might not be as much, um, you know, irony or, you know, imagery or, or foreshadowing, but certainly there's going to be a lot of it throughout the series uh, in, in very unexpected ways. Well, it, they, how they framed it, it's just a guy telling his story to his therapist, their first meeting. Tell me about yourself. Well, I got, you know, my, my family, my nephew, my uncle's a pain in the ass. My mom is the devil. Like it really is a good way to set everything up. Right. The narration is the narrative tool for this first episode. But, you know, it's not like the other episodes are like that. One might think watching this first episode, oh, is every episode going to start with a therapy session and Tony recounting the last few days of his of his home life and his mob life? No, it's not. Uh, you don't need that to be the case. But certainly Tony will talk about certain things after the fact with Melfi. And a lot of the... Uh, a lot of the emotional recaps and uh, developments happen in that room. And uh, you're right. That is the most interesting relationship of the show. Um, but yeah, man, it's just, I I'm going down the road now. I, I once again, uh, I'm very, I I'm, it's just, oh, it's man, a great I show. I, I encourage everybody like the pilot alone is enough to hook you in, I believe, just with every the exceptional acting, writing, directing, and it's a show from the pilot alone. It's a show that can go anywhere, like and with like these characters go to extraordinary emotional places. They really do. I mean, it gets really 
tense a lot of the times emotionally there's a lot of violence in the show obviously but yeah we have there, there was like a, a murder in this first episode, obviously, but so much of what we talked about doesn't really have as much to do with the violence. So much it has to do with just the personality flaws and the emotional struggles of the characters, right? So that just goes to show that even though violence is a major component, it's not always the, the what's at the forefront of oh, the no. show. It, I quite mean, often, it, quite often, the violence is the accumulation of all that dysfunction and emotional struggle that a lot of the characters have. And Tony's at the center of it. So if you think about certain scenes that do have a lot of violence in them, like the Jackie Jr. card game, for example, you know, certain shootouts and killings and death, that's all the payoff to just just hours and hours of great television building up this emotional tension. And and that uh, is why it, it could only be done on HBO at the time. And that's what propelled it to the top of top tier storytelling but yeah no it's uh one more thing i had a thought of too when we were talking about um christopher and uh tony in that one last scene you know i just had a, i had an, a, an epiphany you know christopher is mad about not getting enough recognition from tony and you know that kind of reminds me a little bit of in mad men Peggy feeling she doesn't get enough recognition from Don Draper. And of course, Matthew Weiner, who created, uh, who's the showrunner for Mad Men, was a writer for this show. So there's another parallel that just occurred to me now, right? Another way that this show led to so many other great TV moments afterwards. No, it's like, definitely, like, see it once. I'll say that, I'll say this to anyone, just, just to say, just experience it. That's what I think. Uh, art should be experienced and the fact that you do get these rich characters and rich plot lines it you're allowed to have feelings about like you're allowed to it's like going through a museum and staring at a painting you're allowed to hate livia you're allowed to feel one way about a character one season and then uh like hate a character one season and love him another. It's a, it's okay to see the morally gray in Carmela or Tony even. Like it's okay. Like it, it's okay. I just think uh, this is like we were really blessed to have a show like this because what it spawned. Uh, once again, I think the media landscape, the television landscape, would be a lot less rich without it absolutely and not just um in terms of the tv landscape in general but also a really important moment for the hbo network just to bring it all back together right if sex in the city was one of the big shows in terms of like a comedy definitely this show is doing the equivalent in terms of what you can do with the drama on this network and uh from here on out the the programming on this network is going to continually be trying to match or even raise the bar that the shows we've discussed already, sex in the city and the Sopranos have set. Uh, so I think that's a good place to leave off for now. Uh, you know, obviously we could talk about the Sopranos all day long, but uh, maybe we'll do a Sopranos podcast another time, even though there's <laughs> plenty of those that already exist, but uh, we're going to switch it back up and go back to comedies. Uh, because another staple comedy for HBO that came out a year after The Sopranos is 
curb your enthusiasm so that's next on our lineup so we'll be discussing that next week and so we'll see you then at the next pilot Follow us on Instagram and X, formerly Twitter, at Take Us to the Pilot. That's Take Us to the Pilot with the number two. Attention passengers, we've now reached our destination. We hope you enjoyed the flight and have a nice day.